If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be instinctually merciless, and here's why. In this episode, we find some answers to why are dragons so universal, and how can real creatures deepen our dragon immersion, and what dragon history can we use to spice up some in-game legends. Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm the main brother, Jordan, and I, <laughs> I'm the grand poobah brother, Travis. Right on. Dragons are cool. Yes, this is true. I like dragons. Not in a, like, I've got dragon ashtrays at home. Or, kinda, yeah, 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 like dragon the, statues that, <laughs> well, we have that, but just, they're D&D dragons, they're, not... They're made of plastic. They're <laughs> It's different, <laughs> all right? Seriously, dragons are so friggin' cool, and I don't use them often enough. I've used less than five dragons in my D&D history, and I feel like it should be a lot more considering it's right there in the title. Well, that's fair, but I think five is pretty good. I mean, there's a lot of monsters to choose from, and dragons should be epic. It shouldn't be just thrown in. Dragons also help to raise me, I'd say, because they're in pretty much everything that I've watched or consumed. <laughs> Every video game that's good. Yeah. Like, I remember reading books about dragons when I was a kid. Redwall had some dragons in it, probably. I think everybody has that experience. That's the weird thing. And not only people in our culture. I think that can sometimes work against you because we have all of this stuff built up in our heads about dragons. So it's really kind of hard to get players to get on your narrative if you're trying to do something really specific. Like, I have all of these preconceptions of what this should be. Being able to work in realistic details means that I can bring people into this like immersion quicker, but you've got all of this other stuff out there, all of this dragon experience that is actually working against that narrative. But also the fact that people already understand most of it. It's already... all the surface level stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Dragons are big. Dragons got claws. Dragons got teeth. Dragons breathe fire. So we're going to do an Archives of the Ancients where we're going to look at some real-life animals to help inspire, make them feel like it's real, rather than relying on all of those preconceived notions of what dragons are. Then we're going to see how we can use those details to build some serious dragon tension, because it's not just, hey, you meet a dragon, it's dragon coming, dragon coming. <laughs> and then we're going to hop into Grandma B's schoolhouse to look at some of the oldest dragon lore. Where did original stories of dragons come from in the first place? Like, why did we conjure that in our heads? Like, I got a weird imagination, but I mean, that seems like a jump because the stories of dragons have been around forever. Yeah, and that question becomes super important when you realize that every culture has some kind of dragon. Like, they're so prevalent in mythology. It would be very difficult. I challenge you, if you can find a mythology without some kind of dragon-ish creature, send it to us. So that's the question that people have been asking for quite a while. Why did it originate in all of these different places? Do you think it was 
originally like somebody found what we now know to be like a tyrannosaur skull but pterodactyl they just, yeah they found it on the surface and they're just like ah shit now there's this that revelation would have been pretty terrifying for early humans just be like okay everybody uh <laughs> this thing's somewhere <laughs> we don't know where but i found a skull <laughs> Yeah, it's imprinted in the rock, but stands to reason it's out there, lurking, waiting for me. It's got a five foot wide jaw. We know that. So anyone, if you see a giant flying (laughs) terrible creature, let us know. Well, I found another theory that was pretty interesting. The anthropologist David E. Jones, in his book An Instinct for Dragons, put this forward. He was researching the African vervet, a smaller type of monkey that has an alarm call when they spot one of three predators. Hmm. The predators being leopards, eagles, and pythons. And when David saw a picture with the three of those things, he did the classic like, let me move these together. Holy smokes, that's a dragon. So he did the like, the detective montage. (laughs) You just, what if we lay these over top? Yeah. Enhance. (laughs) Zoom in and enhance. Well, that makes sense. I mean, I kind of instinctually have a fear of all three of those things. Yeah. And that never went away. I remember when going for a jog and I saw a snake, just like a regular garter snake, my immediate reaction was to leap as high as my body would allow before (laughs) I could think. That's evolution. Yeah. (laughs) That wasn't my human brain. Well, and I could make fun of you in this moment for being a baby around snakes. However... I will admit that I used to catch and and ha- and like play with garter snakes. But that being said, my first reaction then and my first reaction well into adulthood has always been the same, which is exactly just oh, uh, I'm going to make a weird fucky face and I'm going to like squinch up and I'm going to be like <laughs> tense up your body in a way you don't want other people to see. Yeah, totally. And- it's inevitably when I'm leading a hike or something like that and I'm on the front end and then I make this like <laughs> and yeah then you gotta play it cool yeah he associated a few things which I thought was kind of neat in that book like roaring uh dragons roar because predators roar the instant of the attack this throws off the inner ear of the prey which affects their balance and muscle response Ooh. actual reason they do that the whole deadly breath thing of a dragon I mean you know, they have all kinds of breath weapons in D&D. Yeah. That might come from just that hot, meaty breath that a predator has when it oh. gets close to the prey. Oh, now I'm picturing being attacked by a lion. Great. Cool. And finally, in a lot of legends, dragons are associated with water. And predators will wait by water sources because they know that prey will mm. eventually come there. There's something instinctually upsetting about having to go for something that you need to continue to live knowing that you're going to potentially face a predator put yourself in danger Mm. don't like it nope so let's talk about everything that is terrifying about merciless big cats scary ass birds of prey and fuck off nope reptiles in the archives of the ancients this is the archives of the ancients where knowledge is unearthed to add wild insights to our world All right, so the top most terrifying creatures that we as humans are instinctually afraid of that create dragons, giant cats, birds of prey, snakes and such. So let's start with merciless big cats. Well, we've had a house cats before and they can be pretty terrifying in their own right. And I think everybody has, and I think everybody with a cat has experienced this one. Oh, absolutely. 
the the thing that upsets me and the reason I'm not a, necessarily a cat person, I'll be nice and friendly to cats, but I'm not like I don't feel a kinship with them yeah. because they're psychotic. <laughs> Creeping in and the dark. They just they they turn and that really is where I can see parallels between dragons and cats is you never know if they're going to be nice to you and rub up against you or they're going to go for the eyes. Yeah. Or start scratching your legs as a house cat. But if a dragon decides to go on the offensive, that's a lot worse. Their behavior is so hard to read sometimes. A dog wags its tail. You know that it's happy because it's literally smiling. (laughs) Cats, who the fuck knows? So what makes house cats terrifying? Well, you know that thing that cats do when they're looking out the window at a bird or a squirrel and they start making a weird sound and their teeth start chattering together? Yeah, they they do that little like nervously excited Ugh. to kill yeah <laughs> you know that thing yes well that happens because when cats do catch prey they go for the back of the neck all right which so many animals do Great. and it's terrible and when they get the back of the neck on the first bite they chatter their teeth to reposition their jaw so that they have a better grip so the cat while it is doing this is thinking about killing something <laughs> And repositioning so that it cannot possibly get away as it bleeds to death and kicks around. Yeah. While you're thinking, oh, cute cat. Cute cat. He's so, look at him. <laughs> He's, he just wants the birdie. He wants to be friends with the birdie. With no. The birdie. That thing is a psychopath and it wants to murder. And yeah, it's actually a move of frustration when it can't get to their prey. That's why it's doing it. No, thank you. So I could absolutely see dragons doing this in, yeah, kind of like that. Uh, I really want to eat you kind of way. Oh, man. If you're actually getting to the point of negotiating with it and it does that. That would be a great little moment for adventurers because I could see a dragon seeing adventurers like that because you've got these two intelligent creatures, like even though the dragon knows that it's smarter than the adventurers, we're going to say that they feel like they're in the same kind of category. And they are because a dragon's intelligence as an adult is 16. Yeah, so that's that's a pretty intelligent creature. Yeah. And the dragon knows that, but they can both communicate very calmly and rationally between each other. However, the dragon in the back of its head knows that these things are snacks. It's parlaying <laughs> with things that are meant to be food for it. Yeah. Therefore, I could see some frustration, even when it's trying to be nice. Yeah. Of just like, oh, I really want to just <laughs> num 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 on these Tiny little snacks. My cat instincts are kicking in. So next up, we've got the house cats covered. So then you've got the Canadian lynx. What's interesting about the Canadian lynx is that it has actually been seen to be hunting cooperatively with their own young. Excellent. Can you imagine a dragon wormling like hunting you and the parent is actually just watching to see how that... (laughs) Goddamn. Giving it advice. (laughs) In draconic. Yeah. Or just like, okay... You go and kill the adventurers, and I'm going to sit up here on this high cliff and just watch. So the moment that dragon gets in any amount of trouble, yeah. but as soon as that, that wormling is in trouble, mama's coming. And so you as the party are probably not even attacking it. You know what's going on. You're probably just trying to get away. Yeah. Well, and Canadian lynx, like whenever you take photos of them, especially at night, you'll get that crazy reflective eye shine. Yeah. You know, like Riddick. That's actually a retinal receptor layer. It's called the tapum lucidum, and it's reflecting light back at the retinal receptive layers 
for another chance of absorption so that they can see incredibly well in the darkness. I oh. would be really... I, I would probably shit my pants if my DM described those reflective eyes looking oh, yeah. back. Especially the size and shape of dragon's eyes. So something else that I learned is the vertical pupils that small cats have. Yeah. They have that because that actually helps them filter out vertical surfaces and basically focus in on prey. So ones that kind of hunch down and get lower into brush for cover before they attack will have that. Whereas bigger cats like tigers will have round pupils. And yeah, I like the idea of a dragon's pupils. I mean, you could go all the way to some prey like goats. They have the completely horizontal eyes. And that's for the exact same reason, because they need to watch the horizon and filter out horizontal information to watch for predators. Not a lot of birds swooping down at goats. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, if a dragon's eyes went from vertical to horizontal based on what they needed. Oh, no. (laughs) Just like... As they're trying to figure out if anyone's hiding. And it reflective just goes, in the dark? Yeah. Like between those two, if you mix those two into a combo and you've got a group of adventurers with a single torch held aloft, yeah, lighting that cavern, and now all of a sudden there's a dragon's pupils. And if the dragon, yeah, I'm just thinking it, when the dragon asks how many of you are there and it goes from vertical to horizontal, <laughs> scans it and then comes back to like focusing in on you. Oh, that's so upsetting. <laughs> That's so upsetting. All right. So that's the that's the Canadian lynx. You've got a little point here on leopards. Yeah, let's keep getting bigger cats. So leopards do a lot of tree hunting in the jungles and such. And a lot of cats have these, but rosettes are those black circles on a leopard's body. And it never really made much sense to me how that actually helps them blend in until you see them using them. And you see a cat in the trees and you're like, where the hell is that cat? Why does this work? I don't understand it. Same thing with animals like cougars. Like we deal with cougars here in Canada. Yeah. And every story about cougars is it was four feet from me. (laughs) I saw its eyes. And that is terrifying. Yeah. And that natural camouflage is so interesting. And I'd be curious, like, what kind of dragon camouflage would be needed for those different types of chromatic dragons and their environments? Like, you've got white dragons. Are they just white or are they patterned? Are they kind of bluish and grayish and white? Yeah. Does a green dragon look like it's wearing a ghillie suit? (laughs) Totally. And with their thick kind of reptilian hides, I think it'd be really cool to not only deal with the colors, but like in a classic cave example, having the dragon's skin rise up in those kind of patterny areas so it looks more like a natural wall or a ceiling even. Oh, I also really enjoy the image of dragons being perched in higher places like a cat in a tree waiting to pounce. Or a dragon that doesn't necessarily mean harm to an adventuring party but let the adventuring party go ahead and make their passive perception checks. However, they're not going to hit the 25, 27 that a still dragon who's just chilling the F out, and they're just waiting and watching and slowly observing, and then all of a sudden, as the players are within, just like that cougar, 10 feet of it, say, what are you doing in my territory? Yeah. He's like, Oh, no. <laughs> there it is. There it is. We were trying to we be We see sneaky. it now. <laughs> and you ready to take us one step bigger? Sure. Let's go to tigers. First of all, tigers mark their territory with claw marks. 
Well, most cats actually mark their territory with claw marks. And I would say that would be a great way to allude to a party. Yeah. Early on to just say, these claw marks are way bigger than any normal creature. You might be in some something's territory. And that's a great way to give a character with knowledge of dragons that chance to get it. Yeah. Like, okay, I know what we're dealing with now. Yeah. And just to build that dramatic tension. Oh, for sure. Those scrape marks could be super long. (laughs) Along a mountainside. Yeah. Along a sheer face. And it just says, no adventurers allowed. (laughs) Spelled incorrectly with backwards L's. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not worried, guys. This one's not very smart. (laughs) It has the intellect of a toddler. (laughs) Well, tigers also have kind of a unique feature, which is that white spot on the back of their ears. And that in nature has the potential to frighten off any anything that might sneak up on a tiger, which I don't know what that would be exactly. But Jesus, please no. <laughs> it can represent eyes, which rattled around in my brain for a bit before I thought, okay, so if a tiger unintentionally has this decoy on the back of its head, how could a dragon create decoys in its environment? Well, typically they would carve out their own layers flame or their, you know, whatever their attack is and claws help them basically create their own layers. Whatever they want it to be. A dragon could very easily sculpt parts of itself into the walls so that when you're coming through with a torch, you're trying to make those perception checks. You're illuminating all kinds of shapes that look very dragon-like. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Even to the degree of like a whole dragon head being perfectly carved into a very aggressive shape coming out of a cavern wall and several of them like yeah. and then all of a sudden wherever the dragon is truly laying and just chilling out again watching some dumb dumb people <laughs> come into its lair just a deep throaty chuckle every time you come across one of those yeah like it knows where you are yeah it's watching <laughs> and it's just enjoying that you're jumping out of your skin at every new shape that it purposefully carved in there you've got a dragon sculptor that prides itself in creating uh very lifelike shapes all right let's move on to terrifying birds yeah they're scary chicken attacked me once never got over (laughs) it still remember that (laughs) yeah birds of prey are to me so scary because of how fast they can move and the peregrine falcon is at the top of that list when they dive at prey They can move up to 242 miles per hour, which is 389 kilometers per hour. That's insane. That's not trackable by the human eye, for sure. faster than a Bugatti Veyron's top speed. I don't know how the guys tracking that even figured it out. Like, okay, it's up there. Oh, (laughs) now it's there. (laughs) About how fast was that? Yeah. (laughs) Give me an estimate. Well, and what's really wild is that that is faster than the human eye can track. Now, I know in the monster manual, you have a dragon speed. And I've seen some very interesting conversations around how fast certain dragons can move, which is, you know, if you just step back, is a weird idea. Like, I've seen online arguments about how fast dragons can move. (laughs) However, what we arrived at as a collective was 18 miles an hour which as one very astute person uh, you know based on their their movement speed in combat 
they arrived at 18 miles an hour. And a really astute contributor to that conversation said, you know, a squirrel's top speed is 20. (laughs) So I don't think that those really apply outside of combat. So what if you had a dragon that really could, you know, you see the silhouette in the sunlight and within a fraction of a second, you hear the roar and then your DM says, roll initiative. And then everyone's going like, it's way up in the sky. Are we okay? And within that six (laughs) seconds, it is able to make it straight down to the ground and the fight is on. Which I like too, because a dragon is super tough. So it doesn't even really need to land lightly like a bird normally would. Ooh. So would it not just come in like a comet and leave a crater, like make an explosion? Well, what a great way to get, you know, some big woolly mammoth or something like that, that it would be perhaps hunting. Yeah. Like if you saw those all around a dragon's lair, like as soon as you started to get the hint, oh, we saw the scratch marks, we know we're in the territory. And then you started to see these craters with blood in the center as <laughs> just a dragon a just spot. lands on a woolly mammoth to just stun it. Yeah. Eeps. So then you got owls. Wonderful creatures, but definitely terrifying when you look below the surface. First of all, they have a grip strength that's eight times that of humans. Like to scale or just actually? Just an owl has Holy a grip strength shit. that's eight times stronger than yours. Probably 10 stronger than ours. Probably 20 stronger than ours. It's just squeezing (laughs) and popping little eyeballs out like they were pop rocks. Yeah, they have no problem (laughs) crushing the life out of foes. What really grosses me out is the whole, the the pellet stuff. Like, they upchuck all of the remains of thine enemy. Because they just swallow them whole, right? Yeah. And then get rid of whatever's not digestible. So you've got all these non-digestible parts. When it comes to dragons, humanoids are one thing. Like, you could probably... They're like popcorn chicken. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. just like... Crunchy bits. Yeah. No prob. But any larger animals, like a woolly mammoth or like their favorite enemy giants... Yeah. Or like other dragons. They could potentially eat parts of a giant, but would they regurgitate the big chunks of bone back up? It's just like a massive bone? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, just like all of those extra pieces. And like owls, like you can always tell when owls have a roost, like a favorite roost or an eagle, you're below an eagle's nest. Oh, yeah. Because you always see bones scattered around the base of that tree. So would a dragon, would that be the next level warning for adventurers of, there's a very large skull. It's the size of a person. This is a giant skull. Those recognizable bones are one thing, but the way you're kind of saying it is, would it not just be like a compacted mass of unrecognizable bone? Would that be terrifying? Partially recognizable. I want my players to fear. Something melted these bones together. I don't know. Like that's that's five skulls. That's five giant skulls fused together. Why? That's upsetting. (laughs) All right. The Andean condor. You have an interesting one about this one. Yes. So they have that kind of ring of vulture feathers around their neck, but their neck and their head flush and change color based on their emotional state. Ugh, that fleshy neck. And I'm not assuming that they have a ton of emotions that we humans can discern. (laughs) Probably just I want to eat you or I don't want to eat you. However, I really love that idea of like scales rippling. Yeah. When they are communicating with some adventurers and how upsetting 
and just like deeply terrifying would it be if the tone and the speech coming out of the dragon was remaining the same. However, one astute adventurer picked up on the fact that all of its scales are kind of bristling and they're changing color to a different color. Kind of like that's a mood change. You can see the effects of it. However, it is hiding it in every other manner that it is communicating. Other than maybe some of the vocabulary starts getting a little more aggressive and dark. And I think that that change in color with a dragon could just be something as simple as a milder tone of its color. But as it gets more agitated, it starts to be more vivid, even more glowing. Yeah, I like the idea of those scales actually getting like a bit of a glow, like you say. That's yeah. that's cool. And finally, the marabou stork. This one is deeply upsetting. <laughs> But oh so dragony. Brace yourselves for this one. So they're known as the Undertaker bird because of their appearance from behind, which is already awesome. <laughs> but the reason that they're terrifying is because they love grass fires. Why on earth would a bird love grass fires, Jordan? Well, as a marabou stork, you can fly out ahead of the fire, settle in, and wait for the fleeing tiny mammals to run to you. Oh, that is just the worst. An opportunistic dragon. Like, imagine Gets a, a book party. of matches. Oh. <laughs> Don't give a dragon matches, first of all. However, yeah, imagine a party working their way through a dragon's lair only to see like a cave-in or some danger, some environmental danger, like a fire. And all of a sudden, the players have to start running one direction, one of two directions to get away. But there is a dragon waiting to attack. And a dragon would be smart enough to set up those kind of traps. Oh, easy. And if a dragon wanted to just pick on an area, it just lights a fire at one end, which it can do with its breath, you know? easy flies to the other end and then all of a sudden if you're in one of those areas maybe the forest fire already it's pretty terrifying but maybe the citizens are like insanely scared and you're wondering why as a party and it's like that way's not safe because there's a fire that way might not be safe because there could be a dragon we've heard about this before yeah and they know that they can't stay and so they have to go yeah i oh that's upsetting. All right, let's let's get through this because this is dragging me down, man. Dragging you down. Let's get on to the reptiles. Y- you were loving the reptiles a little more. So you had something about a snapping turtle. Snapping turtles and alligators are really interesting because they're both ambush predators. So snapping turtles, first of all, look like black dragons. They are swamp dwelling as well. Pretty much where they where the black dragon came from, hey? I should hope so because yeah. they're they're nearly identical. I get some serious black dragon vibes from these things. So they're an ambush predator and what they do is they have a little red or orange tongue and they flick it around inside their open mouth and they just wait for things to come and nibble on that. Trying to get some action, trying to seduce them in. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Whatever you do on the weekends is none of my business. But yeah, they they just they flick this little tongue and it looks like an insect to other fish and animals. And when something comes to investigate, it just snaps. And it's so chill. Like it just sits there. It's such an opportunistic 
creature, it's conserving all of its energy. And that just screams to me that the like big dragon vibes. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't really need to expend any energy. I'll just let these idiots come to me. I mean, a dragon could sit under a town for a thousand years with its mouth right at the edge of the town. A community could be formed around a dragon accidentally. Well, and I remember reading about a particular D&D dragon, and in its description, it was talking about how once its treasure hoard gets big enough that adventurers would eventually hear about that treasure and of course go seeking it yeah what if those rumors of the treasure were started by the dragon totally makes sense i wouldn't mind a steady stream of free food that might be the only reason it's collecting the treasure in the first place why not yeah and then we took it one extra step further with the lure so you take a small part of your treasure hoard into a more easily accessible area of the lair If I'm a smart dragon, I'm not putting my treasure hoard where adventurers can reach it. I'm going to put it somewhere out of the way. Difficult to reach. Maybe even, yeah, yeah. But I'll take a small chunk of that and I'll put it in the easy to reach place where I will stay. And then one of those adventurers that comes looking for it, I'm going to control myself. I'm not going to eat the adventure (laughs) right away. I'm just going to wound them. Very easily with a flick of my finger. And then I will put them by that treasure so that when the next group of adventurers come, they hear the screams help help and then you know of course they're like you've got to get me out of here this is a dragon's well yeah we know that's why we're here we're here for the treasure and we want that you found the treasure look it's right here this is (laughs) not quite the big hoard that we anticipated but this is still more money than we need let's start loading this up and we'll get you out of here uh the dragon the injured adventure is just like no please come on let's go now oh that that... doesn't even have to be part of its lair either no the dragon could take that anywhere yeah because it seeded all the rumors about where it was yeah so it's a decoy lair yeah 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 well then you've got Paranguay's adder which on that same kind of ambush predator opportunistic kind of bent the Paranguay's adder buries itself in the sand and it just kind of like shuffles down into there we've all been there have we you know at the beach (laughs) oh i see yeah fair enough (laughs) and very similar to the snapping turtle it actually uses the tip of its tail as a lure it just flicks it around and that's the only part that it leaves exposed nice and as soon as it feels the adventurers on top of its hiding place that's when it snaps yikes now imagine you're an adventurer and you are say walking through the terrain of a blue dragon somewhere in a desert and you see just a pair of eyes open in the sand nah i'm out yeah So what about the classic thing that I'm scared of, the alligator? I never want to go walking around in an alligator swamp. Well, when we lived in Costa Rica, we saw these every time you went down to Jaco Beach because there was, of course, a huge gator river, 50 of them sitting beneath the bridge, just waiting for people to throw chickens. And the guides that would lead boats through there? Oh, no. I can't. I'll never be able to understand that because they would just the guide would hold up a chicken in front of their body and the gator would go for the chicken instead of the guy. How do you know that it's not going to grab that arm? My My God. Goodness. Anyways, gators are interesting because gator babies start hunting on their own almost immediately after hatching. They have to start catching their own dinner. They can't eat anything that mom and dad are eating. They don't get, you know, regurgitated on like baby birds. Yeah, I guess. They just have to go find bugs and small frogs and stuff like that. So wormlings, in a very real similar sense, they're dangerous from day one. 
Yeah. Like they have, they're very powerful little creatures. And I'm wondering, and I'm wondering, like gators, when gators are ready to go hunting, the babies are on their own. And so the father gator just sinks and lets all those little gator babies start swimming on their own. See you later. Basically, I'll be back in a half an hour. I'm going to go get groceries. <laughs> and while they're doing that, now all of a sudden these little gator babies are going and hunting everything that they can because A, they're voracious, just like wormlings. And their safety net is the parent because the parent isn't usually that far off. So that wormling goes and finds a group of adventurers and the moment it gets in trouble it lets out a little call just like the gator baby and here comes mama oh, okay so the parent comes back right away if the baby's in trouble pretty much oh man and they have a specific little call that they let out and it's really quite cute but it's less cute when you know what's coming after yeah 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 because if your party comes across a dragon wormling the correct response is to run like hell <laughs> but you know the party's not going to do that <laughs> <laughs> but to have yeah to have like a dragon watching from a distance like you find that baby you're thinking of what to do then somebody spots the parent dragon on a nearby mountaintop yeah no intensely thank you. deliciously watching you <laughs> well and let's wrap this up with the final which is a komodo dragon you knew it was coming yeah we couldn't talk about dragons without these suckers so they have a badass strategy called the grip rip and drip ew nope so they when they're going for their prey, which are huge animals most of the time, yeah, they bite down hard. Their neck muscles then tear at the wound that they've just created. Nope. Sorry to get so visceral. And then their venom drips into the wound because their venom is a little less like a snake where they can just bite and it goes right in. So their venom is kind of between their teeth and it has to drip into the wound. Their saliva, basically. Exactly. And the venom lowers the victim's blood pressure and prevents clotting so that they start to get weak real quick. Just like a snake bite. Yeah. The venom's not that different. Just the application is more savage. No. So I could see this kind of increasing the stress levels when you're not even next to the dragon, but when you're approaching its lair. Because there's a lot of environmental factors that are built into dragons yeah. in the mile outside of a lair. So what if this also fed into that? So... Maybe if you did receive any wounds and some minor fights, they take longer to stop bleeding. Gotcha. You're not actually taking exhaustion, but maybe you are described as becoming more fatigued. And maybe certain actions will make you exhausted a lot quicker. Yeah. Well, that's wholly upsetting. One of the interesting revelations that came to me when we were working on this was that each type of creature really fed into the approach and environment and kind of the way I would probably end up describing a dragon, because they tend towards one or the other. If we take the premise that dragons were originally just kind of a combination of those three creatures that we were afraid of, reptiles, birds of prey, and cats, and cats you've got red dragons, their environment is more mountainous, and while all dragons fly, this one seems to me to be a lot more like a bird of prey. Right. Just flying around those mountain peaks. Yeah. So then you've got black and blue dragons. Black dragons being swamp dwellers, blue dragons being more desert dwellers. And those really take me towards those ambush predator style creatures like the snake, like the gator or the snapping turtle. Yeah. So then you've got the green and white dragons being forest dwellers and arctic dwellers. They're a lot more like big cats. Yeah. Like you've got 
the the Canadian lynx and the jungle tiger. And the snow leopards come to mind. Yeah. Yeah. So just searching a couple of facts about these different creatures and those habitats give you a lot of insight into maybe what more behavior to bring out in that dragon. You know, like a forest dwelling dragon is going to behave like a tiger. It's going to have a huge territory. It doesn't really need a lair so much as it just kind of saunters around its territory. Yeah, really. And hunts. And just leaning into some of the physical descriptors, you don't even need to research it much to just be able to describe how a cat moves or its paws are a lot different than the scales of a lizard. And even its hunting tactics. Yeah. Like I could very well see some of those creatures hiding among trees in forests or burying themselves in the sand you know they just all of those different types of dragons just scream to me about these different creatures yeah so if you want to apply this to the buildup of tension in D&D you can again pull from Ashlaw's the trajectory of fear that we've talked about the buildup from unease to dread to terror to that final reveal of horror so you could start in that unease area of marks of their territory and feeling fatigued and restless or stressed when they get closer to it, or those landing craters that we talked about, where they, it's clear that something died in that spot. Leading into dread, where we've got those decoys that a dragon sets up in their lair, wherever that lair might be, finding all kinds of crazy remains from the fused together bones to just bones of massive prey, the changing colors of their scales as you see them from a distance and start to converse with them, and they get more and more agitated and ready to become a predator. Then you've got terror. So seeing some of those baby wormlings, you've got ripples under sand or just the evidence that they are hiding. You can use lures like some of those creatures do. And then I think the terror kind of fits well with the chattering of the teeth because if you are conversing with the dragon and you're trying to have that conversation and they start chattering that's terrifying because you know you're about to jump into horror yeah which is that final time to fight reveal of a dragon which sucks they're unnaturally fast out of combat their pupils changing rapidly based on whatever they need to see and consume and kill creating situations in which you become its easy prey like those wildfires or cave-ins well i want to go and write an adventure with a dragon in it right now i want to write an adventure with 30 dragons that's too many dragons <laughs> your party is screwed how about a dragon with five heads been done spoiler alert before we get to that though let's get to our next segment which is grandma b's schoolhouse folks come here to grandma b's schoolhouse to gain knowledge and apply the history of their realm so you found one of the original types of dragon stories yeah from what i can gather there's a few broad categories that different legends of dragons kind of fall under and one of them is the ouroboros which if you're not familiar it's that circle dragon snake thing with its tail in its <laughs> mouth you know the one yeah so its first mention was in the 14th century bc in the enigmatic book of the netherworld how do you like that that sounds badass i want that book <laughs> me too but it was in the tomb of tutankhamun king tut for the win with his book of the netherworld neat book collection who wrote that? that's a baller book yeah <laughs> the enigmatic book of the netherworld doesn't get much cooler so the ouroboros has a lot of different ideas that it represents in different cultures but for the most part it's 
a divine figure that represents the beginning and the end of time. It's a representation of a year sometimes, was worn on talismans. It was even linked to the Philosopher's Stone. And it's sometimes even represented as half white, half black, which means that it possibly correlates to the yin and yang symbol. So it's very pervasive. It just like it informed a lot of different ideas. And one of the most interesting legends that probably derived from the Ouroboros is the Scandinavian Jormungandr. I just like the name. I know, right? That's basically why I started looking at it. That's a fun <laughs> word to say. <laughs> Jormungandr. Epic. And if you're familiar with the new god of war game the jormungandr is in there if not here's the tale loki had some kids with the giantess angerboda the first was fenrir the wolf the second was hell who presides over a realm of the same name where she hangs out and collects the souls of the dead makes sense and the jormungandr which is a big snake-like creature and they tossed him into the sea because <laughs> that's where that goes yeah that child is kind of weird Let's ditch. <laughs> and he kept growing in the sea until he found his own tail, which was encircling the earth, and grabbed onto it. From then on, he was called the Midgard or World Serpent, which you may have heard. All the way around. And apparently Ragnarok begins when it lets go. Shit. Yeah, that's a lot of chaos. That's cool. And so one of the tales that comes from Jormungandr is Thor's Big Fishing Day. <laughs> I named it that. It's not actually called that. It's from some of the sagas and old tales. Good times. <laughs> so one day Thor went fishing with uh, a giant named Hemer for bait. Thor, I don't think Thor was buddies with Hemer because he cuts off the head of Hemer's biggest ox and takes it. Sounds like a dick move for sure. Yeah. And so they go out to sea and it's going pretty well. They're catching some really big stuff like whales. As you do. Yeah. And he was like, that's pretty good, man. We should probably go back. We got two whales. But <laughs> Thor's Thor's not satisfied with that yet. He says, let's go farther out to sea. Hemer doesn't want to go farther out to sea. But I guess Thor's in charge in this situation because they do. Thor sounds like a bit of a dick. Yeah, he uh, doesn't sound like a great dude in this particular story. So they go deeper into the sea. Thor throws the line out, pulls it up. It's a big one. Jormungandr is on the other end of the line. They stare into each other's eyes as blood and poison flow from Jormungandr's mouth. Jesus. It's a moment. Hemer is sitting next to Thor, getting spooked, and he cuts the line so that uh, Jormungandr can go back to encircling the earth and not start Ragnarok. I was going to say, if he was able to fish hook Jormungandr, wouldn't that mean he took his tail out of his mouth? But yeah, I don't really get it. Maybe he's just hanging on to it. There, there are rules to it if his tail is out of his mouth for longer than 25 seconds. <laughs> or maybe he's just really learned to keep it in there while he's eaten. <laughs> I'm not really sure. But there's a lot of other stories where Thor and Jormungandr are opposing, but that's another tale. <laughs> Interesting. Well, this is all leading up to the series of episodes that we have on dragons. Because one was definitely not enough. So in the next episode on dragons, we're going to talk more about their psychology and how to play them when the party's face to face. Can't wait. And of course, get into another dragon tale, just like the Jormungandr. And then in the third one, we're going to talk about actually setting up an encounter with a dragon. And how to get down to the nitty gritty and really build that mamma jamma up. Absolutely. Before we go, though, we have another great review. So this one comes from Striked17, and it goes, Fun, interesting, and informative. Five stars. I really enjoyed listening to this podcast. The brothers interact really well with each other in a comedic and informative manner. The subject matter is great for ideas and looking at D&D aspects from both player and DM perspectives. 
I binge listened the first batch of episodes and I can't wait for more. Thanks, guys. Keep it up. And we will. Yes, I love to inspire binging. (laughs) Inspiring unhealthy (laughs) habits is fantastic. Yeah, I guess if you put it that way. (laughs) No, but it really it means a lot to us. Uh, I'm glad that you took us interacting really well with each other because I wouldn't say it's always that. It's very antagonistic sometimes. Yes, especially (laughs) off air. (laughs) Well, please keep the great reviews coming. They sure mean the world to us. We really love the support. We really love hearing how you're sharing this podcast with other people at your table and other D&D fans that you know of. And we need the occasional reminder that we're helping, that we're making something that you're actually using <laughs> so we don't just lose our minds in here. Well, thanks to Tabletop Audio again for the sound effects that you heard in this episode. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Reddit, but also you can join our Discord. And also, we do have a Patreon. In that Patreon, you get access to all kinds of really cool stuff. So check it out. Um, I think we're moderately good at making sure that that is valuable to all of our wonderful patrons who do help support the show. Yes. You know, it, it just helps us keep the lights on, keep the website up, keep all of those little things from ticking along. Biggest heartfelt thank you to you fine folks. And... Thanks Thanks for for listening listening and and fear me for I am destruction. That sounded borderline nice. That's how dragons do.